Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we come with a sober text in Matthew's gospel that gives us a dark portrayal of the moment in your son's life when things moved from personal betrayal to physical suffering and torment. And we pray that today you would help us to understand how this moment brings us lower and lower and lower so that we can see the beauty of the cross that is to come. I pray that you would use our time and reflection in this text to set people free today from indwelling sin, that today you'd gloriously birth people into your kingdom, whether here or in worship too or listening online. I, I pray that you would just make them see and in seeing let them believe and believing that then they can be truly saved. And Father, we pray that you'd make the glorious reality of your son's suffering clear to us so we could know how to live and how to love him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament hints at what we see very clearly in Matthew 27, and that is a suffering Messiah. Looking back through the lens of the New Testament and seeing the events of Jesus' life, it's fairly obvious what the Old Testament was talking about. But you have to look in particular spots to really see the fully orbed reality of the parallels and fulfillments of Jesus' life as hinted at in the Old Testament. 
Let me give you an example of a passage that hints at what's happening in Matthew 27. Isaiah 53, it says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To date, we have seen that Jesus prays and agonizes in the garden. We've seen him experience great injustice at the hands of a friend and the entire justice system. Last week, we saw the roles of Judas and Pilate, but now the focus shifts in Matthew's account to show us not just the extent of his betrayal or the injustice, but to show us the extent of his suffering. And all of this is with a view towards leading us lower and lower towards the cross so that we will get in our minds the spiritual center of the gospel, which is the concept of substitution. What we find in this text is that two rich streams, two horrific streams converge. Those streams being both the suffering of Jesus and the substitution of Jesus. And those two streams converge and they intersect at the cross. And what we have here today is the beginning of the fulfillment of what Isaiah talked about in chapter 53. And we will see today how far the Messiah will go and how much he will suffer in order to make a satisfactory substitution for the penalty of sin. Today what you're going to see is how far Jesus will go, and we'll see this over the next two other Sundays, this Sunday and then two more, as we get further and further into the depth of what the cross is, and you will see how far Jesus is willing to go, how much he is willing to endure in order to pay the penalty, not just for sin in general, but to pay the penalty for your sin. And you need to see this text through that lens. This is not a story. This is not just an account. This is not just a um, a, 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 a record of history. This is the, the revelation of God as to what your sin costs the Son of God. And what we will, what we will see here is how Jesus receives what he doesn't deserve in order that you can receive what you don't deserve. That's that's the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus receives what he doesn't deserve, namely punishment, death, judgment, suffering, so that you could receive what you don't deserve, which is forgiveness and righteousness and adoption. And the whole plan of the gospel converges in these next few Sundays as we see how low God wants us to go in our understanding of what the cross really is. Today we're going to see this in two ways and then draw some concluding thoughts. First, seeing how Jesus is exchanged for a criminal. He's exchanged for the guilty. How this becomes a model of what is to come. And then secondly, how he is punished while he is not guilty. By his stripes, Isaiah says, we are healed. So first, to set the stage again for you, this is Friday morning, 
the day of Jesus' crucifixion, and the religious leaders have brought Jesus to Pilate. They have charged him with blasphemy in his claim to be the Son of God and to be the King of the Jews, with the hope that Pilate will view his statements about the temple and his being the King of Jews as seditious so that he can be executed. However, Pilate is a shrewd governor, And he senses that there's something more going on here than just some sort of religious crime or political crime. As we learned last week, Pilate is in a tough political position. He's on thin ice with Rome. He's in the city of Jerusalem with thousands of religiously motivated pilgrims streaming into the city in the midst of their most significant celebration, the Passover. And and Pilate cannot afford a riot or some sort of upheaval. And therefore, he's looking for an exit strategy. He needs to find some way to both appease the Jewish mob that is gathered at his residence, preserve the principle of justice, or at least the appearance of the principle of justice, and then keep the peace. And Pilate has to figure out, how do I do all of this at once? He has a huge political, social problem on his hands. Therefore, what he does, he tries to throw the mob a bone. He devises a strategy to put pressure on the religious leaders to release Jesus through a pardon. A pardon that he would issue, but they would choose. That way he could appear both just and appeasing. And therefore what he does is he appeals to a tradition that had developed where the Roman government would release a Jewish prisoner during the Passover. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Rome had a law that an imperial magistrate could either acquit a prisoner not yet condemned or pardon a prisoner who was condemned. And rather ironically, a tradition had developed in the the area of Judea that in keeping with the theme of Passover, that being the day when God's people celebrated their release from captivity, Rome, in a spirit of pluralism, would then say, well, we'll release least for you a prisoner of your choosing. In fact, the Mishnah, a written record of the oral tradition during Jesus' day, says they slaughter the Passover lamb for one whom they've promised to bring out of prison. So the idea is that Rome would then release this prisoner as an act of sort of good faith in participating in the Jewish Passover festival, and Pilate hopes to use this tradition to his advantage to solve this crisis, thinking that the people will choose Jesus and that way he can appear just and appeasing and this issue can be off his docket. Verse 16 tells us, however, that in the Roman garrison there was a notorious prisoner. His name was Barabbas. The word notorious means infamous or famous or well-known. So this is no ordinary prisoner. This is a, a, a prisoner that everyone who is gathered there will know exactly who he is and also exactly what he has done. In fact, Mark 15 and Luke 23 paint a picture of Barabbas as a man who was so much more than a thief. In fact, likely this mob has gathered because they know that Pilate will issue this pardon and they come to Pilate's house to lobby for their particular prisoner. And so many of these folks have gathered for the express purpose of seeing Barabbas released. The reason is that he's not just a common thief. Barabbas rather was likely an insurrectionist. He was 
a Jew who tried to throw Rome off of the backs of the Jewish people and something happened in the context of a riot or some sort of insurrection where people were killed or maybe even Barabbas himself had killed some folks, probably even some sort of Roman people, maybe a Roman soldier or two. Mark 15, 7 says this, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man whose name was Barabbas. So if we put this together, it is likely that Barabbas is actually scheduled for execution that very day. And the other two men who are crucified with Jesus later on, as we'll see in Matthew, were likely not just thieves in the sense of those who had stolen things, but likely were collaborators or co-rebels with Barabbas. So this, this, these three crosses, the, the three who were there condemned to die, were not just men who had stolen things. This was meant to be a statement. This was meant to be psychological warfare to say, in effect, to the Jewish people, if you try and rebel, and if you kill our people, or you steal things in the midst of trying to throw Rome off your back, here's what we will do to you. In fact, the word translated as thief in Matthew 27, verses 38 and 44 means far more than just petty thief, the kind of people who stole money while working towards revolution and subversion. So crucifixion was not the normal punishment just given for regular thieves, but it was common for guerrilla fighters who dared start riots in defiance of Rome. So this is the kind of person that Barabbas is. And Pilate's strategy is to present the mob with a choice between two prisoners, Barabbas and Jesus, hoping that they will choose Jesus. Pilate, after all, doesn't believe that Jesus is guilty. In fact, while he's deliberating this case, he receives an ominous sign, a message from his wife about a dream that she had had in the night. Look at verse 17. So when Pilate had gathered, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now don't miss the significance of this statement. Christ means the chosen one, the Messiah. So who do you want me to deliver to you? Barabbas, the insurrectionist, or Jesus, who is your chosen one? Verse 18, for he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So what Matthew is doing here is trying to help us see Jesus' innocence from multiple angles. You as the reader throughout the book of Matthew know that Jesus is clearly innocent of these trumped up charges. But even more, he wants you to know that Jesus is innocent from the Roman court's standpoint because Pilate is wrestling with this. He knows he's not guilty. And further, he wants you to know that Jesus is innocent from a cosmic realm. That there are dreams that are even entering into this where Pilate's wife realizes that this man is righteous. Have nothing to do with him, she says. All of this to highlight the difference between Jesus and Barnabas. Matthew is setting it up. Jesus is innocent. Barnabas is not. Jesus is the Messiah. Barnabas, or or, or Barabbas rather, excuse me, is an insurrectionist. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is clearly not. Anticipating that Pilate will come out and ask this question, the religious rulers have made their way through the crowd And they are prompting people to tell them, when Pilate asks who should we release, be sure you say Barabbas, say Barabbas, say Barabbas. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor, verse 21, again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. 
Now, the tragedy of this moment and the tragedy here of injustice reaches its climax when Pilate begins to question the crowd. His, his statement is filled with irony as he asks them, well, then what should he do with the one who is the chosen one, the Christ? And notice in verse 22, the crowd's terrible response. He says, so what shall I do with your chosen one? Do you want Barabbas or Jesus? We want Barabbas. So what should I do with your chosen one? Answer, let him be crucified. Pilate, I think a bit aghast at what they have, what they are saying and what they have chosen, says in verse 23, why? What evil has he done? Pilate clearly is wrestling with what he senses is Jesus' innocence, but the crowd in this moment is only interested in Jesus' death. Therefore, they shouted, verse 23 says, they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And then what Pilate does, hearkening back again to an Old Testament metaphor of washing the hands when innocent blood has been shed, takes a basin of some kind, washes his hands, and the crowd remarkably takes responsibility for his death. Everything about verses 24 and 25 are just unbelievably remarkable. Look at them, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. An unbelievable thing to say. Verse 26 then becomes the turn of the text, the main point of what we're looking at today. It says, then he, this is Pilate, then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So it's just a single short sentence, but it is so loaded. The people who are there, choose a rebellious, murdering insurrectionist over their own Messiah. And Jesus, while completely innocent, is then exchanged for a guilty man. The insurrectionist rebel goes free, and Jesus, the innocent Messiah, takes his place. And Jesus, while completely innocent, is therefore exchanged for a guilty man. Barabbas is set free. Jesus, the Son of God, is therefore condemned. And and this becomes an important model that Matthew will develop more freely. And then the entire New Testament will just drive us to over and over and over. It is that the beauty of what Jesus does is that the guilty is released and the righteous Jesus is condemned. This is, after all, friends, the center, the heart of what the Bible is all about. This is, after all, the center of the heart of what the gospel is. And that is that Jesus is the substitution for the guilty. It means that Jesus takes the place of those who are guilty. He takes the place of those who deserve condemnation. He takes the place of those who deserve judgment. That substitutionary atonement is the heart of the heart of the heart of what the gospel is. That Jesus takes the place of those who are condemned. He's exchanged for the guilty. Now, notice, secondly, not only is he exchanged, but then it gets even worse. He's he's punished for the guilty. He's punished for the guilty. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. He was wounded. This is verse 3. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. Verse 26 says, very simply, And having scourged Jesus, He delivered Him over to be crucified. So scourging by the Romans was a terrible and greatly feared punishment. The Jews punished people by whipping, but it was limited to the prescribed 40 lashes that the New Testament talks about in Deuteronomy 25.3. The Romans, using their ingenuity, like they took many things and improved them, improved, made improvements to the process of whipping someone as a punishment. Their whip was called a flagellum. It was made by taking long strands of leather and then braiding those strands of leather together in a multi-layered whip. And within the multi-layers of the whip, they would, they would weave into the braiding of those uh, strips of leather pieces of bone or small pieces of lead. The criminal was then tied to a post, stretched out and stripped naked. And the Romans were then given license to beat the prisoner as long as they wanted. In severe beatings, the flogging not only reduced the flesh on the prisoner's back to a bloody pulp, but could actually open the body until bones were visible or even the entrails were exposed. Scourging was terrible. It was preparation for crucifixion, and the punishment was so severe that many times those who were enduring this punishment didn't even survive for the purpose of crucifixion. And what Matthew wants you to see here is that there is nothing about this beating that Jesus deserves. His point here is not the extent of the beating. He doesn't give any detail. All it says that they scourged him. Because the scourging isn't necessarily the point. The point isn't the extent of his suffering, although that is real. The point is the fact that there's nothing about this scourging that Jesus deserves. Every single element of this whipping screams of the injustice. And yet, according to Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus' sufferings were all part of the process of him becoming the source of eternal salvation. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So what you need to see is when you read Matthew 27, both this week and in the next two weeks to come, you need to see that the purpose of what he endures is not just in a general sense to endure some sort of suffering, but it is so that he can carve a pathway for you to walk such that you can find forgiveness. So when you read Matthew 27, you need to read this not just as the suffering of Christ, you need to read this as this was done for me. You need to read this as this is what he endured to purchase me, to pay for my sins. He endures such awful, awful physical treatment, but that's not all. He also endures mocking. 
So even though he is punished in this way physically, even though he is in not he is in fact not guilty, he then is mocked as the king of Jews, even though he is in fact the king of Jews. For that matter, he's the king of the whole world. And again, Matthew wants you to see here just the, the, the tragedy of what's happening in this moment, the horror of what is taking place. The soldiers, after beating him nearly to death, then drag him into the governor's headquarters and then proceed to make a mockery of him. Look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the the Jews and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head so here's what happens the soldiers take him from the scourging area and bring him inside of Pilate's compound where they are charged with keeping him until the hour of crucifixion and while he is there they decide to have some fun with him since Jesus has been convicted as the king of the Jews then the battalion decides they're going to have some sport with this king. What follows next is a raucous locker room scene with cruel horseplay, which could have included as many as 600 soldiers if everyone was present. So this is not just the mockery of a few, three or four soldiers. This would have been likely a large group of men, strong men, who are filled with superiority, racism, and this desire to take this king of the Jews and make sport of him in the midst of all of the environment within that headquarters. You can think of it like the embarrassing behavior at Abu Ghraib prison in 2004. Out of control, superiority, terrible things. They took a robe which was likely a part of the Roman uniform, probably an old one. They took it and they draped it around Jesus. Found some thorns, they fashioned it into a crown or a garland, which winners of races would have worn or their emperors wore. They pushed it onto his head and then they took a reed and put it in his right hand. So the combination of this crown and the scarlet robe or the purple robe and the reed were designed to make him look like a vassal king. He would have been a bloody mess and their aim in this moment was to show him and themselves their own superiority over this alleged Jewish king. So the visual mockery is not enough. The soldiers set him in some sort of prominent place. And my guess is is they they began to come towards him one at a time, paying mocking homage to him. Verse 29 says that they came to him, they knelt, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, which normally would have been a greeting of honor, similar to things like saying, Long live the King of the Jews. You can imagine just the sneering sounds of their mockery. Or they would say, Hail, Your Majesty, King of the Jews. And then they concluded their mockery by spitting on him. You can imagine how every soldier who came up tried to one-up the other in terms of trying to be funny or cruel. And as that mob mentality grows, you could imagine how bad and awful it got. Not only did they spit on him, but they took the reed that was in his hand and they hit him with it. In some cases, probably keeping it in his hand so it looks like he's hitting himself. 
You can imagine their, their mockery as they laugh and cackle at this king of the Jews who now has been beaten to a pulp, has this, this crown of thorns on his head, this silly robe around him who beats himself over the head as they say, Hail your majesty, king of the Jews! Tragically ironic is the simple fact that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but he's their king. He's king of the universe. What they don't know is how dangerously close they are to utter oblivion. He's completely innocent of any wrongdoing. The soldiers are mocking a man who is powerful beyond their wildest dreams and who is more innocent than they care to know. And, and this picture that we have here of these soldiers mocking and beating Jesus is one of the clearest examples of humanity at its worst. They are beating and mocking the sinless, innocent Son of God. Harkens back to what we've heard already in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So here is the Son of God who is severely punished, cruelly mocked despite his innocence. He's the Messiah who's been now disowned and despised. A man from whom others hid their faces. It was awful to watch. He was not only abandoned, now he's abused. He was not only betrayed, now he's beaten. Goes lower and lower and lower. In 1873, Charles Spurgeon preached this text, and this is what he said, reflecting on this moment in the Scriptures. Listen, but what an enthronement was accorded to him. See the scarlet robe, it is a contemptuous imitation of the imperial purple that a king wears. See that old chair into which the soldiers have thrust him so that he may be seated upon a mockery of a throne. See, above all, the crown upon his head. It has rubies in it, but the rubies are composed of his own blood forced from his blessed temples by the cruel thorns. See, they pay homage to him, but the homage is their own filthy spittle which runs down, runs down his cheeks. They bow and kneel before him, but it is only mockery. They salute him with the cry, Hail, King of the Jews, but it is done in scorn. Was there ever a grief like this? It amazes us that... Such superlative goodness should have been treated with such fiendish malice. That such mercy should have been in such misery. That such majesty should have been reduced to such despising. Truly he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And they did not exaggerate who speak of him as the emperor of sorrow and the enthroned prince of mercy. And then Spurgeon turns it and asks us to look and see Christ in this text. Here's what he says. Look at him and then restrain your tears if you can. Gaze upon him, ye who love him and who know how fair was his glorious countenance ere it was marred more than the face of any man and see it all bestained with his own blood and then let your heart delight if it can. Nay, rather let me say indulge your griefs and let your sorrow flow in copious streams for all the spectacles that have ever witnessed by human eyes. This surely is the most grievous. He was exchanged for the guilty. He was punished while not guilty. And then that begs the question, so what is the point of this pain? Eventually, Matthew will make this clear. 
all of the suffering clear. But for now, we have to look back and see how this punishment and this exchange of Jesus, the innocent for the guilty, fit into God's redemptive plan. And there's no better summary for us than back in Isaiah 53, where it says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there are just two things that I want to push into your mind and I hope your heart today. Two things that just, that I think help us understand what is, what is the point of all this pain? Here's the first one. It is that we as human beings are rebels who choose rebellion. When given the choice between the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ, and a murderer, the people chose Barabbas. And yet we ought not be surprised. This is the, the simply the natural path of human beings. Isaiah 53 tells us two things. It says that we have all gone astray and we have turned everyone to our own way. In other words, rebellious actions are simply the reflection of a rebel heart. Rebellion against God is a willful rejection of God's rule by choosing our own way. So rebels are rebels who constantly choose Rebellion. And this is the essence of sin. Rebellion is the pursuit of autonomy. For you, in effect, to say to God, you don't get to tell me what to do. And that desire to be your own God, that desire to run your own life, that desire to define your own ethics, to have your behavior governed by only what you think you ought to do, is not only the essence of sin, it is the very reason why hell exists. It is the reason why Christ comes, to rescue rebels in their rebellion. The problem is not just what we do. The problem is fundamentally who we are, that rebels rebel because they are rebels. So don't look at the mob in Pilate's court with some sort of self-righteous contempt as if you would have been the one lone voice crying out for Jesus to be released. While the crowd says, Barabbas, do you really think you would have said, no, choose Jesus, do you really think? After all of the thousands of times in your lifetime, when knowing fully about the beauty of who Jesus is, you still choose to go your own way and delve into the delicacies of sin when you know how horrible they really are. And do you think that in this moment, in that mob, in that core, when you can barely win the battle with your greed and your lust and your anger and all the sins that plague your life, that you really would have that moment said, I choose Jesus? The choice of Barabbas instead of Jesus is no different than the countless choices that we make when we turn to our own way. And Romans 3 gives us a devastating picture of ourselves. It says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. Not one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, they try and run their own life. They want God off their back, off their ethics. They don't want God God to tell them what to do, and that is the essence of what it means to be a rebel. So why would I why would I tell you this? I tell you this because you need to know that this is who we are, and we should tremble at the mercy of God that He gives us His own Son to reach out to rebels while still in their rebellion. 
To understand the beauty of God's grace, to understand the miracle of what He has done for us in Christ, we have to first understand how bad, how awful, how rebellious we are, not just in terms of what we do, but fundamentally in our core, because the problem is not just the essence or the things that we do, rather the problem is the nature of who we are from birth. We're born to a rebellious race. The point of this pain is that God aims to rescue rebels. But then secondly, notice this. It is central to the good news of the Bible that Jesus becomes the substitute for those who are guilty. So even though they are rebels, even though human beings are rebels in their rebellion, and even though there's none who does good, even though there's no fear before God in their eyes, even that while we were dead in our sins, here comes Christ who becomes our substitution, and the guilty, us, goes free while the innocent becomes charged, so that we receive the grace of Christ, and Jesus receives all the wrath of a sin-hating God. The hymn writer In regards to the song, Hallelujah, What a Savior, captures it so well. Look at the text. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. That's us. Ruined sinners to reclaim them, to take them back from their rebellion. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Say that last line with me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So Jesus took took the place of Barabbas. That becomes a model of what will happen in the next two weeks as we see Christ take our place on the cross and then Christ becomes the substitute of those who put their faith in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Then Jesus becomes the substitute for ruined sinners. He becomes the substitute for those who should have died, should have paid for their own sin, and Christ becomes now the satisfaction of God in His substitution. The hymn writer continues, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Say it with me, hallelujah, what a savior. Do not miss the significance of that second line, in your place condemned he stood. Because this this notion of in my place condemned he stood becomes the essence of what the gospel is. It becomes the means by which through faith you see Christ and realize that he paid the, the atonement for your sin and that by receiving Christ your sins can be forgiven. That he took your penalty so you could become righteous. That in my place condemned he stood. And this center of the gospel not only becomes the means of eternal life, but it becomes the groundswell of what it means to live in this world. That everything in life is processed through this new lens. That I am a sinner, and in my place condemned he stood. You have to read the rest of Matthew through this lens because everything he endures and everything he suffers and everything he experiences is so that he can reclaim rebels like you. He bears the shame and the scoffing so he can stand in your place. He, he bears the beating and the mockery and next week the cross for the purpose of becoming your substitutionary sacrifice. So therefore, when we look at Matthew 27, we see that it's my sin, it's your sin, it's our sin that causes this horrific moment that Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our sins and the glory of the center of the gospel is this good news that in my place condemned Jesus stood. 
Everything he suffers is for the purpose of fulfilling God's aim and making forgiveness possible. Everything he endures is for the aim of bringing many sons to glory. Everything he endures shows us how ugly and costly our sin is. So when you leave here today and some temptation comes across your path that teases you with delicacies of what you could have in this, remind your sin-loving heart that Jesus paid it all and in your place condemned he stood. Tell your temptations, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. I will not give in to you. And the marvel of this substitution that becomes now the ground of obedience and what it means to follow hard after Jesus is that this substitution becomes our hope. In other words, if you understand the horror of your sin, if you, if you get what Jesus suffered and if you understand what this means for your soul, then you have found bedrock of God's grace and the wellspring of what it means to truly live. It means that you bask in the beauty of what it means for Jesus to take your place in light of what you deserve. And that simple thought of in my place condemned he stood becomes so life-giving for every area of your life. It changes everything. When you understand that guilty and vile and helpless we and spotless Lamb of God was He. When you understand full atonement, that means past, present, and future sins. Full atonement. Can it be? Answer, say it. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Yes. Oh, thank God, yes. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank you, O Jesus, that you have been condemned and stood in our place. And that we, while guilty and vile and helpless, found the beauty of what full atonement truly is in you. Oh, I pray that sin would lose its power that we would be rid of our pride and how big we think we are and we will just come to this simple confession I know nothing else except Christ and him crucified that in my place condemned you stood and then that changes how I see life how I live how I conduct myself as a, a single male or as a single female as a married man or a married woman it, it affects how we we live in the context of home how we give how we handle our work we are people who know what it means to have been set free we are gospel people who were condemned and in our place you stood and so we thank you that we We have you as our King, our Savior, and as our substitution. 